This is the Airplane Geeks Podcast. Our aim is to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and entertain you a little along the way. This episode, we speak with the co-founder and CEO of Reliable Robotics. They're working to bring certified autonomous vehicles to commercial aviation. In the news... The first graduating class from United Aviate Academy as the airline seeks to create more pilots. The NTSB and the BEA are critical of the Ethiopian Aircraft Accident Investigation Bureau final report on the 737 MAX crash. Also, pilots are taking it upon themselves to help make Aspen Airport safer. The federal government wants to know if the recent Southwest meltdown was caused by unrealistic scheduling. And the purchase of ADSB Exchange by JetNet is raising some concerns. We also have an Australia News Desk report. All that and more coming up right now. Welcome to the Airplane Geeks Podcast. This is episode 735 of the show where we talk aviation. I'm Max Flight, and with me is first Rob Mark. He's contributing editor to Business and Commercial Aviation, part of the Aviation Week group. He's a BizJet pilot, the CFI, a former air traffic controller and supervisor, and he publishes the Jetwine blog. Hey, good evening, everybody, and uh, welcome to uh, my side of the world where it's uh, uh, plus two degrees Fahrenheit uh, right now. And let's see, what would that be? For uh, Max T, uh, in centigrade, that would be what? About minus 12? A lot, yeah. A minus a lot. Oh, God. All right. I could have done that. <laughs> also with us, of course, is Max Trescott. He is the host of Aviation News Talk podcast. He's a national CFI of the year and an expert on the Cirrus aircraft. Hey, great to be here. And just to you know, go head to head with Rob here, it was about 17 Celsius here today. So believe it or not, that's a little cold for us. And so my hands were slightly chilly. Actually, no, I'm wrong. It was closer to 13, 14. So it was a little, little chilly for us for this time of year. My goodness. It's coming here, that's for sure. But uh, also David Vanderhoof is with us. He's our aviation historian. He's from the American Helicopter Museum. Hello, all. Uh Max, it was good to see you yesterday. I know. I stopped by the museum. It's kind of strange when your co-host magically appears at your museum. It's sort of like out of place, but looking forward to a interesting show tonight. And I don't know what the temperature's outside. It's <laughs> Nobody cares. Winter, and it doesn't matter. Yeah. And for the rest of the world, they probably don't care. That's so right. let's get on with the show. All right, let's do that. Our guest is Robert Rose. He's the co-founder and CEO of Reliable Robotics. Now, they launched in 2017 to bring certified autonomous vehicles to commercial aviation. The company says their automation system enables remote operation of any aircraft type. And their vision is to transform the way we move goods and people around the planet with safer, more convenient, and more affordable air transportation. They're at reliable.co. Now, as for Robert, his engineering experience spans aerospace, self-driving cars, robotics, gaming, and consumer products. Prior to co-founding Reliable Robotics, he was director of flight software at SpaceX. And at Tesla, Robert was the senior director of autopilot. 
at X, Google's Skunk Works division, Robert led a team bringing advanced machine perception and manipulation technologies to large vehicles. So, Robert, welcome to the Airplane Geeks podcast. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. And I'm in the same neighborhood as Max T, so it is a little chilly um, here in the San Francisco Bay Area. Wow. And you two know each other a little bit. We do. We go way back. (laughs) (laughs) We got to meet a few years ago, and it was neat. Neat showing Max our facility. It was a funny coincidence. It was about the time that you were calling me talking about instrument training, I think, and I was trying to find you because I wanted to know more about those airplanes out there. So it was just kind of a coincidence. We were both looking for each other at the same time. Yeah. Now, we'll focus on current activities at Reliable Robotics after the news, but it's worth noting now that the company recently announced two new strategic advisors. I have an interesting pair. Captain Lee Moak, the former president of the Airline Pilots Association, and Steve Alterman, the president of the Cargo Airline Association. Now, Robert, these are not just a couple of engineers with stars in their eyes. What, uh, what do they bring to Reliable Robotics? Lee brings a really interesting uh, perspective, being a former pilot and military pilot. Um, he also, um, and as you mentioned, in addition to Alpa, was also deeply involved with uh, Delta Airlines. And um, he's been instrumental with us in some of our public policy engagements and uh, engagements in D.C., Steve Alterman as well. Um, the two of them, actually, the, the way we got connected with them is they both were involved in the FAA Management Advisory Council together, providing outside advice to the FAA. And the two of them have been extremely helpful um, with our engagements in in D.C. and educating folks on Capitol Hill uh, as to what we're doing, as well as um, other executive audiences in the FAA. That's fantastic. It sounds like you brought in a couple of really, really well-qualified individuals to help with the effort. I'm sure there are many others as well, but uh, these are the most recent ones that we don't have enough time to go into all of them. (laughs) Too many to mention. All right. Well, let's start off with some of the aviation news from the past week. Are you guys ready? Ready from the West. Midwest is on board. Delaware's here. First item comes from, well, aviation24.be. This is uh, something that Brian sent to us. United Airlines celebrates historic first graduating class of Flight Academy pilots. And this is United Aviate Academy. They graduated the first 20, sorry, the first 51 student pilots out of what United hopes will be 5,000 by 2030. United is the only major airline to own a flight school. And interestingly, 80% of this inaugural graduating class is made up of women and people of color. So uh, first class of this group, uh, Max Trescott, we keep hearing that we need more and more pilots. Uh, this seems like United is stepping up to uh, making a difference here. Now, you said only airline to own a flight school, and I would say probably only U.S. airline to own a flight school. Got it. You know, it's interesting. If you look uh, elsewhere outside the U.S., it's been traditional for many, many, many years and many airlines that they do the training of their pilots uh, ab initio from start, zero hours. Uh, themselves. Uh, and that's just not, nothing that's happening. <laughs> that, that hasn't happened here in the U.S. The U.S. airlines have had enough of a supply in the past that they've you know, been able to not have to get into the flight training business. But I think United decided times have changed and they need to uh, step up and make sure that they have a steady flow of uh, pilots coming their way. 
And of course, they're uh, they're willing to put their money where their mouth is because they've raised a a good chunk of cash to uh, act as scholarship money uh, for the uh, right the right student or right group of students uh, because learning to fly is still is still expensive. In fact, I, when I was up on the Aviate uh, site the other day, they had the various uh, ratings and their cost breakdowns, and they. Uh, estimate it's $17,500 to earn a private pilot's license. And uh, wow, that is just beyond uh, anything that I would have thought. I would have said maybe ten or eleven or something like that, but not, not almost $18,000. Uh, so the one thing that they don't have yet is uh, uh, for the people that have to pay out of their pockets and sign on uh, with... Uh, student loans or whatever, uh, there is not yet a, uh, a way for them to uh, work the money off in uh, the years coming before they actually uh, hire on with United Mainline. Maybe that's coming one of these days. I think that when it is, I think we'll certainly see many, many more uh, people try to, to jump on board with some of these because, again, uh, I, did anybody remember the name of that uh, guy we had on our show? Oh, God, years and years ago that, that flew for uh, Singapore, and he started out as an ab initio pilot. Uh, I met him up at Oshkosh in person, but uh, he he said he had to uh, become an indentured. I'm just kidding. He wasn't really indentured. Uh, but he signed on to uh, uh, Singapore with absolutely no flight experience. And uh, I said, well, did it bother you that you had to sign on for eight years or something like that. He said, no, absolutely not. I, I didn't know how to fly. I wanted to do it, but I couldn't have afforded it. Why would I not be loyal to the company that uh, provided me with this incredible value? And so I think a lot of people would uh, be in the same, uh, you know, head down that same road. But uh, we'll see if that happens. Maybe another major airline is going to pick up a flight school or something like that. And I flew with him when he was visiting here in the Bay Area uh, multiple Shrinan. times. Yep. And his, his story is fascinating because he was uh, hired in, in, in India. So they came there recruiting people to uh, come fly for the airlines there. And he was just lucky to get in there. And I think he felt that it was a great opportunity. And not only that, he got on the, uh, as I recall, the, the 787. No, the 787. 787. He, and he started, uh, you know, with 250 hours. So it's a pretty remarkable story. <laughs> Robert, when we look at uh, autonomous aircraft, commercial aircraft, um, I, there are lots of motivations uh, to explore down that path, I think. Is the pilot shortage a, a major driver in that regard? I think it's a factor to consider, but um, I'm not sure I'd put it at the top. Um, I think safety is is more important. Um and there's a lot that can be done to improve the safety of operations. It is interesting, though, um, to think about what could be done longer term. You know, if we look more than a decade out, as aircraft become increasingly automated, what does that do to pilot training processes? Um, and what can we do to get people through these sorts of training systems um, at lower cost? I wanted to comment, too, the $18,000. That's not Bay Area. <laughs> I was just running some math after you said that. I'm pretty sure a private pilot's license in the Bay Area is going to run you minimum 
$25,000. Really? When it's it's $200 an hour for a 172 and $100 an hour for your CFI, you know, you're, ah. and then you got all the books and other things. Like, that's not a cheap thing to do. I I had no idea it had risen to such such numbers. Hmm. All right, let's uh, press on. We uh, have a number of articles concerning the NTSB and, in fact, the French BEA as well, having some issues with the final report from the Ethiopian Aircraft Accident Investigation Bureau. Um, this, of course, on the, seven, on the 737 MAX uh, crash, the fatal accident um, there. Uh, we have an item from uh, AIN Online. NTSB finds more problems in Ethiopian 737 MAX final report. Uh, we'll have a lot of links in the show notes. There's an NTSB press release and some other uh, kind of supporting documents. The criticism here partly uh, centers around the Ethiopian Air Accident Investigation Bureau, the EAIB. The final report seems to focus on systems failures a lot more than it does on the actions or or inactions of the pilots. Now, the NTSB and the BEA both believe that the failure of the pilots to execute proper procedures was a contributing factor. And they commented on that, both the, they being the NTSB and the French BEA, they commented on that to the EAIB, but those comments were not reflected in the final report. And now, the NTSB and BEA uh, have have made public statements to the effect that their belief that the final report is, uh, well, somewhat lacking in this respect for not including their comments. It's kind of an interesting twist. It really started coming out in December, I think, with some of the reports. But it's kind of hard to assess just exactly what this means and what the impact will be on other things going on. It's unusual for a uh, a country, uh, I, I guess, uh, a country that we we don't think of Ethiopia as a a major world power or something like that. Uh, and uh, I, I have no idea what their accident investigation group is like. Uh, but usually, the uh, uh, the the major power that that provides the assistance is given the courtesy of absolutely, you know, we uh, will include whatever it was you said in the accident report. Uh, But this time, for some reason, they did not. And uh, I think the the BEA and the uh, NTSB were, uh, you know, rather miffed, as they probably should be, because uh, some of the things the EIB said in their report didn't, the, the report didn't substantiate it. Uh, they mentioned that the uh, angle of attack indicator that triggered the MCAS event uh, was caused by an electrical failure. And uh, yeah, the NTSB rightly pointed out, no, I, I don't think so. Because for one thing, uh, you know, the temperature was uh, well above freezing. So even if the AOA hadn't worked at all, uh, th- there would be no reason for the uh, electrical failure to be a problem because they were concerned that the uh, uh, heater on the uh, AOA wouldn't uh, uh, wouldn't be on and wouldn't prevent any ice. But 
ice doesn't form when it's uh, warmer than uh, 32 degrees. Uh, but then, too, there was a, uh, a conclusion the NTSB wrote in their comments uh, that they thought uh, part of the problem was uh, that the AOA had been uh, knocked off the aircraft by a, a bird strike, except they didn't provide any exper- or I'm sorry, any evidence as to why they thought it was a bird strike. Uh, it made sense about the electrical heater, you know, not being relevant, but but the bird strike, nah, it didn't work. So uh, so again, there there were a number of things that just didn't seem to make sense. But going back to the human factor part, uh, Ethiopian uh, airline group was provided with the the guidance that Boeing put out after the first accident, but uh, some sources that I read kind of thought maybe their approach to uh, communicating that uh, uh, information to their pilot group was a bit uh, namby-pamby. You know, they, they didn't really seem to uh, to get right down to the, 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 the uh, uh, nuts and bolts, which was, hey, guys, before, you know, the briefing before takeoff is, if anything goes crazy with the pitch on this airplane, you reach down between the or just beneath the throttles and turn off those breakers to the electric trim and easy enough. But however, realize that this problem on that Ethiopian airplane started happening, I believe when they were 200 feet in the air, maybe 300. And at that airspeed uh, with the gear up, the world is just whizzing by everything is a complete blur. And, uh, uh, I I can tell you that uh, that would if that happened to me even in an airplane I was pretty familiar with talk about an event that uh, uh, kind of uh, knocks your socks off for a few seconds while you try to figure out holy cats startle effect I I don't think we've even tried anything like that in a simulator so there were just a lot of things that just didn't make sense. And to date, I do not believe we've heard any uh, any reaction from the uh, Ethiopian uh, uh, airline group about what they thought of the uh, NTSB and the BEA's comments. Yeah, the BEA was, um, as you say, also critical. They, they said in, in their uh, comments that the operational and crew performance aspects are insufficiently addressed in the EAIB final report. They said the pilots didn't respond properly to the stick shaker. The captain failed to disengage the auto throttle, tried to engage the autopilot, uh, and also that the portion of the cockpit voice recorder transcript showing the difficulties encountered by the first officer, well, that was removed from the published report. It had been in the uh, preliminary. So there were some changes like that uh, made. The NTSB said that uh, after um, the uh, EAIB reviewed the comments, it provided the NTSB with a a revised draft for its review, and the NTSB saw that the uh, revised report failed to sufficiently address its comments. And under uh, ICAO Annex 13, that process, the NTSB provided uh, the EAIB with more expansive and detailed comments, but they didn't make it into the into the report. So it's kind of a mess. It's kind of, in a way, it's, it's kind of uh, 
um, different perspectives. And I think the, the, the bottom line is that the Ethiopian report doesn't address the performance of the pilots to the degree that the NTSB and the BEA wanted to see. So there we are with this final report as it is. I don't think there's a process for, maybe there is, for amending a final report. I don't know. I haven't really encountered that before. But in terms of the impact, what difference does it mean? I don't know. I mean, we do have this uh, event, I call it event, this court appearance where Boeing was ordered to appear before the uh, arraignment in the Texas federal court. And uh, Boeing pleaded not guilty, it turned out, that I think that's what people expected, not guilty to felony fraud in that arraignment. I wonder if these comments from the NTSB and the BEA might have any impact on this other criminal case in the future, because it it seems to point, you know, blame away. Now, that case is, is sort of based on the Victims Act, which is supposed to give people, victims, the uh, you know, the ability to participate in the process. So I don't know if there's a linkage or there will be, or Boeing's lawyers will draw a linkage to that. I'm, I'm really not sure. Micah and I were talking about this over the last week, and uh, he had an interesting theory that Boeing would be happy in one sense to, to see the, uh, the comments of the NTSB in the updated Ethiopian report, because again, it seems it appears that uh, the airline was not very uh, not very good at communicating the information that Boeing provided after the first accident to the Ethiopian pilot group, and that could work in Boeing's favor. They said, "Hey, you know, we could only provide the the information if." You guys don't choose to take it seriously enough to to really uh, emphasize it to your crews. It's not our fault. Uh, I I don't. I think that's probably a huge oversimplification. But uh, again, uh, it, it's it's an interesting point. Yeah. All right. Um, Aviation Week has an article. Aspen pilots want to improve airport safety record. This was written by our own Rob Mark, actually. I knew I'd heard that title somewhere before. Sounded familiar, huh? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Aspen Airport. I guess some people have regarded that as kind of a dangerous airport. In fact, uh, as you report, Rob, the Aspen Times called it the most dangerous airport in the United States. Uh, Well, again, and danger, you know, is an airport dangerous? Yeah. well, I don't know, Max, you, you might have some thoughts on that, but I tend to think it's the, the, the airport is what the airport is, and pilots are either willing to uh, use the airplane they're flying uh, under the performance limitations under which it was certified, or they're not. And uh, if they do, then it, it should work if the numbers all line up. And hopefully pilots don't do stupid things. But we have seen some pilots do some kind of stupid things, like the guy that took off at Aspen in January of last year with a 25-knot tailwind or something, a a Hawker 800, and he, of course, never got airborne, sailed off the end of the runway and 
destroy the airplane. Luckily, nobody was hurt. So the um, the group has formed this Aspen Pitkin County Airport Flight Ops Safety Task Force, which is, I guess, made up of mostly mostly pilots. Rob, is this a, is this an example of pilots you know, looking at a situation and saying we need to this needs to be safer? And maybe they're not investigation experts, but uh, they do have a lot of experience and want to pull themselves together and come up with some recommendations. Well, I think it's uh, it, it's important that people understand that when you're new to a particular uh, area or to a uh, a segment of of flying, uh, it it's always good to seek out the help of people that are uh, on top of the issue. Uh, you know, Max uh, does uh, mountain checkouts, and people come to him. For a reason, because they say, I, I don't know anything about high, high altitude flying and uh, I'm supposed to miss the rocks, right? I think, isn't that what this is all about? And, you know, I, but, but I'm just saying that you, you, you seek out local experts. And, uh, and there were certainly, uh, I think, a dozen people in the Aspen area of, of various categories, some, some private pilots, some local flight instructors. There's a flight school there at Aspen, uh, and also some charter and some business aviation uh, jet pilots that all said, hey, listen, let's sit around and, and talk for a while, and let's see what we can come up with. Maybe we can, uh, and they don't want anything regulatory. They don't want to go that far. Uh, they want more uh, suggestive kind of uh, uh, techniques that pilots can think about to, to fly safer. I just want to underscore what Rob said. Local knowledge is king. It doesn't really matter if you got 10, 20,000 hours of instruction. If you go into an airport which is unfamiliar to you and which is challenging, and this one is definitely challenging, there's probably things you can learn from the, the locals who know all the different ins and outs uh, of that particular airport. So there have been times when I've picked up the phone, called people in Southern California because, hey, I'm going into an airport and I just don't know exactly what the uh, – you know, the, the, the appropriate protocol is, and hey, they can tell you in one or two minutes everything that's important that you need to know. So I just encourage everybody to get local knowledge anytime you're going into a place that's challenging. Okay, here's the question of the day. For all of us non-Colorado um, people, what's special about Aspen Airport? I've got the, uh, the departure um, procedure up here. So for example, um, the uh, the SARD-3 departure procedure, which is an obstacle departure procedure. First off, you can't take off on runway 15 uh, because there's terrain in that direction. And then when you take off on runway 33, it requires uh, visibility of 400 feet in one mile, which, man, is not very much, but with a minimum climb rate of 460 feet per nautical mile. Now, if you were climbing at 90 knots, that translates into about 700 feet per minute. If you were climbing at 120 knots, that translates to uh, right around 900 feet per minute. But you've got to maintain that all the way up to 14,000 feet. And I can tell you that most GA piston aircraft would not be able to sustain that climb rate all the way up to 14,000 feet. Uh, and so that may go to the Bonanza accident that uh, Rob was talking about uh, earlier. And then as you were uh, flying this departure procedure, after making uh, a turn, you join a 
a localizer back course. Now, most pilots have never flown the back course of a localizer. Uh, typically, a localizer is meant to be flown on the front course, which means you're flying toward the airport. Here, you're flying away from the airport. Um, it, you get reverse sensing uh, in your needles. It's just adds a tremendous layer of complexity to uh, getting in and out of this airport. So my question for Robert is, is this, is if you have, uh, you know, all these uh, various um, things you need to know about different airports, how do you build a, you know, a, an autonomous or automatic system that can take all of these differences into account? Is it that you can reduce flying to just a, a fixed set of parameters or, you know, how do you account for the variability of the situations? I'm just looking at this departure procedure for the first time while you were talking through it, Max, my hands are sweating. I'm just going, man, this is crazy. <laughs> how do you keep all this in your head? And I'm imagining for me to be able to do this. Okay. I'm going to sit down with the bat D for a couple hours and I'm just going to drill this over and over and over again until I got it. Um, this does not look like the type of thing. I'm a low-time pilot. I, I wouldn't just jump into this. I don't even think I'd be comfortable just jumping into it with a CFI because I don't think I'd learn anything. I think I would be just overloaded trying to follow it the first time. <laughs> anyway, to answer your question, um, yeah, there's there's a part of me here as an engineer that just goes, why why can't we automate this? That the set of instructions here that we're encoding in the procedure is exactly the type of thing that you can program a computer to do. And, you know, why isn't it at the airport environment, why can't you just pull up your FMS and just say, boom, here's the departure I want to fly, and then just have the system do it? And then where this, I think it's really interesting is if you need to deviate due to air traffic control instructions or something, or if they give you something that you need to do for avoidance, um, you can have the system do that for you as well, and, and the pilot can provide high-level guidance, uh, but still keep you safe. Um, make sure that you're not going to... Uh, what was this, the Bonanza pilot that unfortunately um, decided to turn too early, um, automation could tell you don't do that, or it would just prevent you from doing it in the first place. And, and that's the human factors part that we keep talking about, because a computer, uh, unless there was a, a freak mistake, it's just a no, you can't do that. I know I can't do that because uh, the I will not be able to outclimb the uh, the terrain. And uh, I was on a Zoom call with all of these guys last week, and uh, one of the controllers said something kind of funny. I mean, I'm sorry, I didn't really mean to use the term funny because it's not funny. But uh, one of the controllers said something that was eye opening uh, that a business jet pilot in a again in a Hawker 800. Uh, flew the approach uh, to 1-5, missed, and then said, hey, Tower, what, what's the missed approach on this again? Uh, and, you know, and the, and the controller was kind of, I, 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 you know, you, you can't spit it out fast enough because it requires an almost immediate right turn to fly outbound on this, uh, on this localizer. And, uh, and, and you've got to do it pretty quick because the rocks at the end of runway 15 are pretty high. Uh, and uh, I think within just a couple of miles to the uh, northeast and the northwest, from what I remember, the, uh, the MEAs are well above 14,000 feet. And the airport elevation is, uh, do you guys see it? 8,000. 8,000? 8, okay. Uh, so... <laughs> You know, and then and then 
Okay, why does this airport exist? <laughs> because people want to live up in Aspen. It's the old story. Hey, if you have enough uh, support to uh, use the, open an airport and use it, and it's going to happen. Uh, unfortunately, you can't always fix uh, people that make uh, dumb mistakes. Well, and also you get some challenging uh, situations here. You know, this airport is buried deep in a mountain valley. And so you get weather that's far worse than you might get in uh, the flatlands of the Midwest or places like that. Uh, taking off on runway 33 and suddenly having a 25-knot gusty tailwind, yeah, which led to the Hawker crash. You know, those kinds of rapid shifts don't happen in a lot of other parts of the country. So it does make it more challenging. Okay, again, you two are making my argument that says, why does this airport exist? <laughs> Probably because under some conditions, it can be perfectly safe. And I think that's the issue. You know, the FAA in its regulations and generally is generally very, very permissive. And so if something can be done safely under some circumstances, we're allowed to do it. That doesn't mean it's going to be safe under all circumstances. In fact, I, I was only scared once going into Aspen and that was as an airline passenger. And I was in a, uh, what was that four-engine airplane? A BA-146. This is a long time ago. Uh, and I was on the right side uh, seat, and it was IFR. And I'm going, oh, yeah, this is really cool. I'm going to see Aspen. And, and we broke out, and, and the rocks were, like, right there. <laughs> I mean, I thought I was going to be able out to just about get out and touch them. And I went, oh, boy. This is exciting. This seems is, like the type of airport right? too. Where, go ahead. No, I was. Uh, go ahead, Rob. You get the the guest always gets the right away. Sorry, I don't know the protocol. <laughs> uh, I was gonna, just going to add a quick comment that it seems also like the type of airport where you might have a higher frequency of external factors playing a role, external pressures. Not to stereotype, but I could see that kind of thing happening in that environment more frequently. All right. From the Hill, we see Transportation Department looking into whether unrealistic scheduling played a role in Southwest Holiday Meltdown. And a Department of Transportation spokesperson, DOT, said that DOT is in the initial phase of a rigorous and comprehensive investigation into Southwest Airlines' holiday debacle that stranded millions and probing whether Southwest executives engaged in unrealistic scheduling of flights under which federal law is considered an unfair and deceptive practice. Rob, I didn't know that that was a uh, a federal law. Well, seriously, I mean, I, I admit my bias. I like Southwest Airlines. I may have lost, they may have lost a few points this last holiday season because we had family involved in some of those messes. But still, I, airlines... Uh, unrealistically scheduling flights. Oh, I am shocked. I know. Shocked I know. to hear this. Uh, Who knew? And uh, I, we, we've talked about that many times before, that when an airline realizes it can't complete the flights, uh, they they should get them off the books uh, and and give people enough time and enough flexibility to make other plans. That's what really hurt Southwest is that there were no interline agreements between that airline and, and other carriers 
for, uh, you know, that would have made it easy for the uh, gate agents to try to rebook anybody. Or, I mean, sorry, the, uh, the res agents to try to rebook people. And they just, I think it just kept coming in so quickly that they just went, ah, you know, they, and you know, I, don't know, I don't know if they unplug their headsets or, or what they do. But uh, uh, so again, the, but will this have any long lasting effect? Well, I don't know. It kind of sounds like good PR, but I I don't know that I'm I'm you know in there believing it's going to be a, a big deal. Speaking of good PR, you got to watch SNL this week. Oh, Go I back saw and that. Watch the, uh, Saturday Night Live did a one of those faux commercials that they did for Southwest, and um, it was pretty Caustic. harsh, brutal. <laughs> yeah. In all fairness, Southwest has always had a really good reputation as far as customer service goes. This was would have been better towards United, but they were pretty much poignant on, on Southwest failure. So here are a few lines that came from that commercial. We are finally upgrading our computer system to 2008 Dell computers. And they also, also noted that their new Premier Lounge is located inside a Starbucks. We'll save two or three tables for you. And then at the very end, they say, you bought a Southwest ticket. You obviously don't respect yourself, so why should we? I love that. <laughs> oh, that is brutal, though. Well, yeah, and the other, the other part about it was they were talking about the Dell laptops. They were replacing these Dell laptops, and they were sending them to scheduling. For all of us who are on the inside, it does get – was a little too close to home that, you know, you're dealing with – Dealing with all of this technology, and like we had with the with the FAA um, no TAM system, you know, you're talking about antique computers being overtaxed, and you know, this is this was a humorous way to say it, but there's truth in humor. Yeah, there usually is. Well, there are financial ramifications uh, to Southwest for this. Uh, the, the Hill points out, well, they say two things. They said there was a drop in stock price and Southwest took an $800 million hit for these cancellations. Uh, I think the stock price drop comment is sort of bogus because if you look at the Southwest stock price over any period of time, you see that uh, anything that happened in the last few months is well within the just the standard variability of their stock price. So I don't think their stock price took a hit at all. On the 800 million hit for cancellations, they take that from a Washington Post article with that headline, and the numbers come from a Southwest filing with the Securities and Exchange Commission, which estimated pre-tax losses from the disruption between 725 million to 825 million for the quarter. Yeah, also that they expect to lose 400. To 425 million in revenue directly from the flight cancellations. So the numbers are big. I don't know if a you know a congressional inquiry is going to do anything to make Southwest behave any more differently than these numbers would cause them to you know to to react to. But uh, you know, I guess uh, that's what politicians do. And I don't think it'll be an, as as satisfying as the Taylor Swift ticket debacle <laughs> yeah. things on on the Hill last week. Yeah, so. yeah. 
Okay. One last news item um, before we dive in with Robert. And this is just a mention because this is kind of developing right now. And uh, there have been a number of stories. This one from Wired, uh, the flight tracker that powered Elon Jet just took a left turn. And what we have here is uh, ADSB Exchange, uh, which uh, we had the president of ADSB Exchange, Dan Sruford. He was our guest way back in, well, not so far back, in episode 692. Uh, but uh, ADSB Exchange has just been purchased by JetNet, which is owned by Silversmith Capital Partners. And a number of ADSB Exchange users are dismayed, outraged, because they see that or they think that ADSB Exchange is going to change in nature as the uh, VC money comes in, uh, the, the Capital Partners Group comes in uh, to probably try to generate profits you know, from that business. There's a lot of comments going on out in uh, in Mastodon I was looking at t- today. People are just really incensed and they're thinking this is the worst thing that could possibly happen. Uh, I don't know if that's true or not. I think it's a little too early to say, but it's kind of breaking now. So we thought we'd mention it. I, th- I think it's, it's unfair that some people are saying that uh, they think Elon Musk is some couple of layers behind uh, actually in buying this uh, organization just to <laughs> make sure his Gulfstream's tail number's not on there. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. I'm just seeing this for the first time, but I mean, I'd add something to this. that this There's been a lot of conversations that we have with um, folks in the FAA and um, in D.C. about um, our aviation infrastructure, airspace infrastructure we have in this country. And well, you know, the other thing that's in the news here is, you know, the NOTAM issue that the FAA experienced. And I think there's a lot of interesting questions here about who runs this infrastructure, what is it used for, how critical is it to to movement of systems in the airspace. Um, and I hadn't seen ADSB exchange was uh, transferring ownership, but I don't know, just as, as a society or as a nation, I think we need to ask, like, what's what's in the public interest here? What are these systems used for? And do we have systems that are relying on ADSB exchange for, for movement of aircraft? And is it really in the public interest to have these be held by a private entity? Yeah, there are, I mean, there are other organizations, you know, Flight Radar 24, others that also collect ADSB data. Uh, in this way, make it available to others. Uh, the people who use ADSB Exchange tend to see that organization as in kind of a different category. You know, it's it's more the non more non commercial, although it's not non commercial, but but you know, less profit oriented, um, more open source kinds of you know things. There is a lot of outrage, at least amongst you know the vocal users of the system who are in social media. Well, it's unfortunate, I guess, from from our perspective, you know, we would like to use ADSB information for more safety critical purposes, but because the protocol doesn't go far enough to protect, um, well, it doesn't anonymize um, the the users of the system. It, there's a lot of privacy security concerns that have been raised. I mean, Elon's been talking about this a lot publicly. He's not the only one, um, but that debate's been going on for a really long time. Um, it would be nice if we had an encrypted ADSB that um, allowed you to get 
position and velocity information without it being directly attributable to a, a person or, or an aircraft owner. Because at the end of the day, like it should be about safety and it should be about just maintaining safe separation. And you don't care if it's a, I don't know, a Gulfstream or a CJ, you just need to know, you know, what's its position and velocity. Well, Robert, it's interesting uh, that, you know, you, we brought up or you brought up safety in, in many of these conversations and how that is a, you know, a main driver for automation, uh, safety. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how Reliable Robotics is, you know, is viewing that and, you know, what, are, what is the big driver for safety that, um, that you hope to address? Well, there is a grand goal of getting to a place where we can remotely pilot aircraft. That's that's what we want long term. But the the way you get there is through small incremental safety enhancements. And when you look over the history of um, aviation, not just commercial but military as well, you know we make changes to to aircraft and and the airspace environment when it's in the interest of safety. Uh, I can't think of any examples off the top of my head where we did something purely for, you know, some, I don't know, something that was driven by financial incentives. It's, it's usually safety. Um, and, you know, it goes back to creation of um, jet airways, IFR, you know, the first auto land system was developed in the interest of safety. GPS was put on aircraft in the interest of safety. Um, RNAV GPS approaches. And so for us, you know, we looked at that grand goal and then stepped back from there. Okay, if, if that's where we're trying to go, what are the small incremental steps that we can take to get there? And I mentioned a few key technologies that we've introduced into aviation over the last couple of decades. We're building on top of many of those. Um, the first is our navigation system that we're developing is higher precision than what goes into aircraft today. Um, and Again, this is in the interest of safety. This is so if you have uh, a component failure, you have a navigation system that can automatically detect that. That also gives you higher precision information about where the aircraft is and better situational awareness for the pilot. You know, when you're training to become a pilot, you got you to gotta work on your instrument scan and you got to compare your VSI to your airspeed and maybe you're looking at your altimeter and then you're glancing over at the GPS every now and then. Um, and all of that fusion is happening inside your mind. Um, and we're the first thing that we're developing or we've developed rather reliable is a system that combines all of that into one. So there's just one thing that tells you this is where the aircraft is. This is where it's going. And then building on top of that, once you've got that capability, uh, now you can auto land an aircraft without any airport infrastructure. And we see this as a huge safety improvement. It's very few airports in the United States or the world, rather, where you can actually take an aircraft all the way down to the ground. Um, and that requires Cat 3 ILS infrastructure at the, at the airport. And then you also need the equipment on the plane. And then you got to train the pilots on how to use the Cat 3. It's very complicated. It's very expensive to maintain. As a low-time private pilot, I want a Cat 3 ILS in my 172. I just want the plane to do that for me, please. I want that every time. And so we're building towards something that allows you to do that without the infrastructure at the airport. Once you've got high-precision navigation 
auto land, it's not much of a stretch to build an auto takeoff capability. And there, technically speaking, the, the takeoff is the easy part. Airplanes want to fly. Um, the hard part is actually takeoff rejection um, and all of the calculations necessary to ensure that the plane does not take off if there's an issue, if you happen to have a 25 knot tailwind that we weren't expecting, for example, or whatever it happens to be. Um, weight and balance calculation is incorrect. We, we, haven't, uh, we haven't left the ground by the time we expected. Um, stop the engine, full brakes. So that's this, uh, the next step. And then once you have all of those capabilities, it's not much more of a step now to add auto taxi. Um, and there, the control problem of auto taxi actually isn't the hard part. The harder part is maintenance of the navigation database. Um, that's what's really novel there. We have excellent navigation databases for, uh, for aircraft once they're off the ground. Um, and we have excellent navigation databases for runways. Um, but taxiway data, we, we have some, we have some room to grow there. Um, so all of these things, you know, if you combine them, I think it's good to point out the safety record of, of aviation and what this technology means for that safety record. We repeat, I'm sorry if this is controversial, but, you know, we repeat almost ad nauseum that aviation is the safest mode of transportation in the world. Um, that's really only true for large commercial aircraft. It's not true for small general aviation aircraft. Um, small GA planes are more dangerous than driving. But if you introduce these levels of automation into small, especially single engine aircraft, um, now you've um, eliminated the number one, the number two causes of accidents, which are controlled flight into terrain, CFIT, and loss of control in flight, LOCI. You make that impossible. And you've saved hundreds of lives per year um, with a uh, with a system like that. You've also um, there's a very large number of near misses that you're preventing using this technology. Where we were talking earlier about misreading the airport environment, and I'm sure there's a lot of unreported near misses that happened because somebody did not read the departure procedure correctly, or chose not to execute it correctly, or they didn't run the arrival correctly. Um, or they didn't land on the runway that they intended to, or they didn't land on a runway, um, or moving around aircraft on the ground. Um, although the NTSB doesn't track all of these, um, there's a fair number of incidences every year where people are clipping the wings of another plane. And, um, you know, that's, those don't make the headlines, but you end up seeing the result of those when you get your your new insurance statement for the year, and then suddenly the cost of your um, your aircraft goes up, and you wonder why. It's because somebody clipped the wings of that model plane at another airport. Sorry, I got rambling a bit, but I, I hope this paints a picture of of how we can go for it, Rob. Uh, well, I, I was just thinking and, and, and listening to all that. I'm going, yeah, yeah, I know, yeah, you're right. Uh, however, uh, I would like to ask that. Uh, whether the motivating factor in this was not to, uh, well, let me rephrase that. Uh, I don't want to say something that's really stupid. I've been known to do that. So I'm thinking, I'm thinking this. I through. say stupid things all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, no, it, it, it looks to the outside world uh, as a, as a longtime aviator that 
They just want to get rid of the pilot. I mean, because they don't have to pay him. He's not going to make stupid. They won't have to worry about him making stupid mistakes. They've got a computer that can fly the airplane way better than uh, he or she can. And we could fly the airplane, you know, 18 hours a day uh, because we don't have to worry about rest breaks and hotels and all that kind of good thing for this uh, fleet of caravans. And I'm not trying to be... um, uh, you know, uh, nasty. I, I'm just saying that's how it looks to the pilot community. So, wh- how wh- what would you have to say about that? Well, not all the pilot community. Um, there's there's a lot of people putting themselves at risk on on small single engine aircraft. Um, but I structure a response to this, I guess, in two parts: um, as a pilot and and as an engineer and. As a pilot, personally, as a low-time pilot especially, I want the automation. I really, really want the automation um, because I don't have the time to maintain the currency. I want to be able to get in a plane and feel responsible putting myself in the plane, my family. I want to be able to do the weekend trips. I want to be able to do the flights that I got my pilot's license to do that I can't do because I don't have the time to maintain the currency. And so I I want the automation so that I can experience that convenience of flight. As an engineer, there's a very practical reality here that the number of steps we need to take before we have anything that we could call, quote, autonomous, it's, it's a very long sequence of steps. And it's going to take us a very, very long time to implement all of these changes. And it's going to require changing more than just the aircraft. The airspace needs to be modified. That was actually going to be another question I was going to ask you is that how uh, do you envision this initially uh, uh, fitting into the ATC system? Because if you have no pilot on board, who's talking to ATC is it a is it a computer yeah. how how is that going to work no it's this is pilots talking to pilots pilots talking to the controller um, our system in its first instantiation just has uh, a pilot in a control center um, communicating through the aircraft out the aircraft existing VHF radio um, other air traffic the controller um, that none of that system needs to change. And and we chose this because moving to something like digital pilot controller communications or tech space, uh, extending uh, CPDLC, controller pilot data link, um, so that it's robust enough for fully automated operations is is a very, very long ways away. Oh, so I'm jumping ahead a little bit too much or too quickly, I guess. It's... Well, I mean, it's, I think, a really interesting conversation. I just, I don't see that happening anytime soon. You're thinking like decades? Oh, it, yes. Um, I it, This may sound a little flippant, but I think as long as you've got, you know, one person flying around in a cub with no radio, um, you're going to need pilots involved in the operations of, of UAS. Um, because only another human is going to be able to predict what that other pilot is is going to do. There's also just there's a lot of emergency conditions where you're, you're going to have evolving situations, and you're going to need to rely on human judgment. Very very simple example here would be if you've got a an airport environment with parallel runways, 
um, and say you're a remote pilot managing a UAS that's taking one of the runways, and then you've got another aircraft that's uh, going in on approach on the other one. You have all of the prior context of listening to the radio calls for the last five minutes for that other person that's on the approach. You know what they're going to do. You know what instructions that they were given. And if they deviate from those instructions, you'll know immediately, and you'll be able to tell your your aircraft to go around or turn left 90 degrees or whatever it is. Um, I struggle imagining an an automated system or a, quote, AI being able to manage that effectively in a provably safe manner anytime soon. You're going to need humans involved. I I was trying to imagine when you were talking earlier um, about uh, uh, automating the uh, taxi and and automating the takeoff and and Max and I were just talking last week on his show about uh, what what happens when the engine quits at 400 feet in the air uh, wh- what do you do i mean some people would say well i think i could make it back no i'm going to land straight ahead uh i mean i'm just trying to imagine what would happen with an autonomous uh, aircraft that blasts off into the clouds at 200 feet and uh, and and for some reason the engine uh uh, hangs it up at, at five or six hundred feet. I, I, I'm, I'm not being critical. I'm just curious as heck to think how's the computer going to figure out the answer to that one. Yeah, I'll answer again as a pilot and as an engineer. You know, as a pilot, I hope I'm never tested. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do that in sim um, and figure out what it is that I do. I mean, we always talk about that, and then it's another thing to actually go through it are you going to react quickly enough or is panic going to set in and you're going to try and teardrop back to the airport and stall it um because uh, you're taught you know under a certain altitude go straight go straight but oh that you want to go back <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> that runway is calling um but as an engineer um i go well you know why why do we have to rely on split second hu- human judgment i can think about this ahead I can train, 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 and then I can program the system ahead of time that if I am within this region, this is what I want you to do. If you're in this other region, then go do this other thing. And we could just program it that at X altitude above ground level, it's going to go straight and it's going to go to a predefined ditch location above that altitude. We've determined that, you know, if we meet all of these performance criteria, then the aircraft can actually teardrop and go right back to the runway or, you know, whatever cross one runway whatever it happens to be mm. Mm. wow that that so that i think is is exciting as a, a, a way to meaningfully improve safety and then back to your previous um point about you know whether or not we need pilots i think you need pilots involved in making those decisions it's where i think this gets interesting for the pilot community is the role of a pilot changes somewhat um it's it's less you know, split second decision making and a lot more um, methodical pre-planning. So uh, here's another scenario, Rob, that we've been talking about. You know, let's you talk about ta- uh, Robert. Sorry, you're talking about taxiing around, and what happens when you have a triple seven crossing the runway with a seven thirty seven taking off? How does AI deal with that? Uh, this might be a, a, a relevant question. <laughs> 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 well. Well, there, I think there's opportunities first with just the instructions that you program into the aircraft and the confirmation of that. This this is another area where I think automation can be helpful. Um, I think through uh, a number of 
human factor studies and designs of of the system we can build an interface that makes the um uh makes the intended behavior of the aircraft clear to all operators involved and that's going to go a long ways to improve safety um and then the next step would be sensors that can intervene when there's an issue you know we've got automobiles now with radars on front and stereo cameras um and they implement active emergency braking and, and other uh sorts of functions um i think there's a future where we start to put those types of features on board aircraft Robert, where are we now in the, or where is uh, Reliable Robotics now in the development cycle for uh, some of these concepts? Uh, are we, uh, uh, do we have things in test flight? Where are we now? Yeah, we're flight testing a large number of the things that I mentioned earlier, the navigation system, auto land, auto takeoff, auto taxi. Um, we're really, we're deep, deep into certification. We're approaching certification in three phases um, there's three different programs that build on top of one another. And the first is the certification of a continuous engagement autopilot for the Cessna Caravan. This means that it's an autopilot that you you turn on right after you get in the plane. It handles starting the engine. It handles taxi, takeoff, land, et cetera, for normal, uh, normal operating conditions. The second certification manages contingencies that are outside of our system's control um, so the engine shutting off unexpectedly or, uh, flight into known icing, for example, or flight into unexpected icing, um, are handled by the second certification. And then the third certification adds detect and avoid and the communication system, which allows us to, um, relocate the pilot from the plane into the control center where we're at in terms of getting all of this done We've proven all of this out in an experimental capacity. Um, we have a Cessna 172 that does all of this. We have a Cessna Caravan that does all of this. Um, we have been working with the FAA now for many, many years on um, establishing how to certify these types of systems. That's step one. <laughs> let's let's write the rules for how we're going to do this, and then um, and then the second part is then actually delivering on on all of it. We've uh, been able to announce publicly um, so far we have um, several issue papers that have been signed by the FAA, um, the first of which uh, establishes the certification basis for our system, which is an important step. Um, this is essentially the mapping of the ground rules for how all of the airborne equipment um, goes through the process, which is important because... Normally, when you certify um, something under an STC, you're you're following a well-established set of processes for, a, I don't know, a two-axis autopilot or adding a radar altimeter or adding a NAVCOM system. And there's a lot of there's a lot of existing stuff that you can build on. But we're combining all of those functions into one, and then using them to control the airplane. And so, getting those ground rules in place was a big deal. Um, there's a second issue paper. Uh, that establishes the means of compliance, which takes that um, one layer deeper and goes into all of the standards and advisory circulars that more of the nuts and bolts for specifically how those regulations get interpreted. Um, and we've we've made great progress there. We've also made great progress with the FAA on um, approval for that navigation system that I mentioned, um, as well as being able to use that navigation system for um, for auto land, auto takeoff, and auto taxi. 
I, I can see by the expression on your face, you're going to ask me a timeline question yet. And I'm <laughs> right after this and I'm, I'm hesitant to, to say it will, it will be done by this time because yeah. it's difficult. Um, a lot of, it's difficult and it's really, really hard work. Um, it's difficult to predict because nobody's ever done this before. Um, we're also dependent on the FAA for a lot of this and it's a process, um, to, to go through this back and forth with a regulator. Um, optimistically, you know, I hope that we can have the system certified inside of two years. Um, but it's, it's difficult to predict because it'll be done when it's done. Yeah, sure. Sure. Uh, how has the FAA been responding to this and, uh, do you have issues with uh, their capacity to uh, to uh, work through these issues? I think, you know, at a working level, in- engineers, it's good. Um, you know, the there is a path forward for what we're doing. Although it is very complex, it fits within um, the existing regulatory structure. Um, we don't need a new, um, you know, the FAA doesn't have to go create new regulations to be able to do what we're doing. It fits all within the existing regulations. The challenge I feel from my perspective is it's bandwidth. Um, there's what we're pushing on the FAA is very, very complex. And right now in 2023, over the last couple of years, there's been a lot of new entrants that have been asking things of the FAA. Uh, and so they're getting pulled in a lot of different directions. And so you know, if we do have a challenge, it's it's getting getting priority um, uh, from the FAA. It's it's tough when there's a lot of new people trying to get new aircraft certified and, and other types of systems to go into planes. But I, I think we've been pretty successful advocating for what we're doing because it's it's an existing plane, so there's a lot of complexity reduced just right there. Um, it's for um, a good use case. Um, the caravan especially is a key enabler for, um, for expedited air shipping, um, all over the United States drives a huge portion of, of us GDP. And then the safety benefits, it's kind of a no brainer. Like you put the system in the caravan, it's going to save lives period. So I, I think the, the combination of that has been helpful. Um, but still, you know, if I, if I had a wish, I would say, you know, we need, <laughs> The FAA needs um, needs more resources for sure. Yeah. These certainly do seem like active days in aviation for new things and things that require the regulator to be involved in. So I, I have to believe it's just really taxing their their capacity. Well, especially when you're talking about uh, some uh, you know FAA engineer that perhaps doesn't have a great deal of experience with this particular, the specifics of this particular topic. And, and, and guys like, like you at Reliant are saying, no, let, let me, let me show you how this is going to work. It's really neat. And, and we can plan for this and we can, and the guy going, uh, I don't know. I, I'll get back to you on that. Uh, you know, and, and because they're sticking their neck out, especially after the Boeing debacle. Uh, and they're going to say, well, you know, we'll get back to you. <laughs> I mean, at the engineer level, I, I, there's a lot of, a lot of creative thinking and a lot of engagement. Um, really? Oh, that's great. That is really where great. things get tricky. It's when, um, when you're proposing something new that crosses discipline boundaries. So, you know, I, I mentioned the navigation system. 
That's airborne equipment that utilizes radar altimeter, GPS, WAS GPS, air data, inertials. It's there's a lot of different disciplines involved in in how we build the safety story for that system. And the way the FAA is structured, there's there's a lot of different silos um, that work with those those different features that I just mentioned. And so the challenge is you got to get them all together at the same time. Say, okay, we're we're going to work together right now, and we're going to move towards making a decision. The, the challenge is, um, yeah, it's it's hard to corral all of those different. Um, subject matter experts and stakeholders within the FAA to to work on the same thing at the same time. That's hard. Robert, I'm wondering, how do you see this rolling out when it does get commercialized? Is this equipment that's going to go into partners of yours, uh, airplanes, uh, other companies? It's going to go into your airplanes? Who gets this stuff first and what do they do with it? Yeah, so we're, we're working... Um, with uh, a major air cargo company um, on rolling this out. Um, they're one of the largest operators of the Cessna Caravan. I think they are the largest operator of the Cessna Caravan. And it, the way we see this rolling out is um, we'll be providing the equipment um, first and then also providing as a, a service the expertise to get the 135 certificates modified to be able to operate this equipment. So a lot of these caravans operate under 135 certificate. Um, there's also going to be modifications to training procedures. Obviously, it's a, it's a very different autopilot. And then when we move to remote piloting, it's going to be a very, very different set of training. I guess the short way to say this is that we don't have aspirations to to run a, a giant airline and vertically integrate all of this um i think for a variety of reasons it makes a lot more sense to sell the equipment and then um license all of the training and procedures out so that other people can run it we do have our own airline i'll, I'll give a plug for uh for this we we have a, a five aircraft operation this is actually new max since we last spoke we have a five aircraft operation running out of albuquerque uh, for FedEx. Um, and so we're using that as I would call it a, an, an incubator airline to, to learn how we're going to get all of the procedures and, um, training and safety management systems, um, modified so that it can support this, this new type of equipment. Is that using caravans? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, perhaps one final question. Uh, it seems to me that, um, Pulling this together, uh, developing these these concepts requires a lot of different disciplines, a lot of different uh, areas of expertise. Where do you find uh, that expertise, that that knowledge base? Are you? I mean, everybody has a help wanted sign out these days. Does uh, reliable robotics have the, the resources that you need to do this? Yeah, we're hiring, um, and yeah, we're we're looking for people all over the place. It's it's a very multidisciplinary activity. That's actually one thing I love about this work. Um, I'm my background is software engineering, but I get to work with mechanical engineers and electrical engineers and flight test engineers and flight controls engineers and um, and airline folks. You know, just it's very very multidisciplinary. Um, you know, my background. Um, you know, I came from you know, sort of the new space world and, and self-driving with, with Tesla and SpaceX. Uh, and there's certainly a, 
contingent of folks in, in reliable robotics that have come from that world. But, um, you don't, that's not going to do everything that we need. Um, it's important to sort of fuse in uh, expertise from other disciplines as well. Um, we also have a heavy, heavy contingent of people who've worked in the Part 25 transport category certification world, uh, people who've worked on Airbus systems and Boeing systems, um, and bring more of that classic systems engineering, um, which you need if you're going to achieve eight nines reliability, or in some cases, nine nines reliability, which is very, very different from space. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Several orders of magnitude different from space. Um, And then we've also pulled people from, you know, other, other robotics programs, just um, whether they're autonomous ground vehicles or underwater autonomous vehicles, a lot of, a lot of new grads too. Um, and I, I think it makes for a really interesting mix of um, perspectives and experience, and, and that's how you get to a better product faster and a safer product. All right, Robert. Interesting conversation. Uh, where can folks learn more about what Reliable Robotics is doing or you know, any other uh, uh, resources that you might offer up? Well, our website, um, reliable.co, um, has some stuff on there. There's a link to our YouTube channel. Um, we have a, a blog with some entries that go into a bit more detail uh, beyond what we've discussed here. That's where I would start. Okay, terrific. Go to our website. Do, do you have uh, very patient investors? Yeah. <laughs> uh, are they, they going to be listening to this podcast? Yeah. Uh, no, I just, I, I'm just curious. That's just I between mean, us. You, you've opened up so many <laughs> cool things. They go, oh, wow. How are they going to solve that? Oh, and then they've got to make this work. And I, I mean, I don't know. I noticed too when I looked at your leadership page that the majority of your uh, your staff uh, look like they're not ancient fellows like some of us. And remember, anything you say is just between friends here. We won't tell anybody. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think we've been extremely fortunate with our investor base so far that we've got folks that are in this for the long haul and they understand the challenge, but also understand the opportunity. You know, what what bigger problem is there to solve for humanity right now other than movement of things through the sky, in my humble opinion? Um, you know, this this is easily for me like one of the top three most important challenges for humanity. And so getting getting investors that um, understand that is important. This isn't like a quick turnaround SaaS business by any means. This is a big deal, longer duration program, but the opportunity is absolutely huge. Um, aviation today commercially uh, – billion globally, and aviation um, globally contributes, I I forgot the statistic, I think it's 4.1% indirectly and directly to global gross domestic product. That's how important aviation is to humanity. And remotely piloted systems, um, more advanced safety-enhancing features is just only going to expand that even further. I, I think over the next... 10 to 20 years, we're going to see um, a huge increase in things moving through the sky. And that's that's really exciting. But you need investors that get excited about that. 
okay. One one last question. I'm sorry. Okay. What what do you think is the is the bigger challenge for you as you think a few years down the line? Uh, uh, getting this system certified on an airplane that's uh, being driven by a PT six or uh, integrating it uh, five, seven, eight years down the line with an electric airplane. It, it would almost seem to me like if you solve this problem, that's the big problem. And the fact that later on it becomes an electric airplane, eh, no big deal. I mean, to some degree. Yeah, I'm going to try and give you a simpler answer because the engineer wants to deep dive <laughs> all of the complexities of flight controls for an electric aircraft. Um, but if we just limit it to um, traditional hybrid or uh, simple CTOL electric aircraft, um, it is it is a drop-in. I, a great deal of what we're doing is transferable to other types of fixed-wing aircraft because the flight control, the flight controls will be different, but everything else above that um, can be reused. All of the procedures um, and all of the remote piloting infrastructure can all be directly reused. Um, the engineer, Robert, will give you a longer, more detailed answer about how flight Controls for um, multi-rotor electric aircraft are very, very different, and the safety story there is a lot more complex. Um, but also the uh, procedure development is going to be the really hard part um, because they're, you know, with our fixed-wing aircraft, conventional takeoff and land, we're leveraging a lot of what already exists in the airport environment um, for automated landing and for standard instrument departure procedures. Very, very little of this exists for helicopters. And so when we think about automating EV tolls and, and other systems like that, um, it's not so much an automation problem as it is there's just a lot of airspace procedure work that needs to be done. It's going to take a very, very long time. And hence why my degrees are in communications and not in engineering. <laughs> just thought I would make that statement because the uh, Robert sounds like he's really been does this stuff ever keep you up at night or is it just so exciting that you you easily sleep oh i definitely have nights where i can't sleep out of excitement um but i don't i don't consider that a bad thing um (laughs) (laughs) no i wouldn't either i think this is so cool what you guys are trying to do i love it i i absolutely love it i feel um quite fortunate to be able to be working in this space and you know if if you need someone to fly along on one of the test flights uh, one of these days in, in one of those uh, uh, aircraft, I would like to volunteer Max uh, flight. I'm sorry, Max Max Trescott. Well, Max flight too. No, that makes I was sense, say Max Trescott. Max flight just, is not a pilot, so I think it does make sense to have him on one of those airplanes. <laughs> All right. Hey, wait well. a minute. Wait a minute. The rule was that I was always going to be the first person to volunteer. Yeah. Well, oh, okay. I'm sorry. In an unmanned aircraft. That's right. Okay. That's right. All right. Well, Robert, thanks again. Really appreciate you taking the time to uh, this is talk with really us. Fun. Yeah. Very good. Thanks again. Thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity. If you haven't listened to the Air Traffic Out of Control podcast, give it a listen. It's a show that brings you curated ATC recordings that are funny, interesting, and even sometimes unbelievable. The show publishes a full episode every Wednesday and short flyby episodes throughout the week. 
So be sure to check out Air Traffic Out of Control wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. What's up with the geeks? All right, I've got a couple of things myself. I don't know if you guys have anything going on, but uh, I'll just mention uh, we cleaned up the website a little bit, airplanegeeks.com, mostly on the right-hand side. Uh, There's some old stuff, some outdated stuff that we took out. I noticed our banner for Aviation Extended, Peter Johnson's podcast, had somehow disappeared, which is really weird because the code is there, but the but the banner is not. So anyway, that's that's fixed. And in fact, uh, Peter's latest episode of Aviation Extended has a great interview on the topic of uh, hydrogen fuel cells for uh, aviation power. You might want to check that out. Uh, another change, we moved the donation link. It's now up at the top perhaps a little more visible. So if you'd like to support this little operation financially, just click that link and it'll take you to where you can do that. Um, Also wanted to mention that we from time to time get a request for uh, ancient back issues, uh, back episodes of the podcast. And our friend Willem uh, very graciously has for years maintained a, um, a, a page where he archives old episodes. And so what he does is he creates a zip file at the beginning of each year for the previous year. So the 2022 episodes have just been zipped up into one uh, giant download. And we'll put the link uh, to that in the in the show notes. If you, you can go right back to the beginning if you're crazy enough to want to do that. Uh, but I'll give you the URL. It's airplanegeeks.oosz.org. Don't ask me what that what that stands for. It doesn't really stand for anything. Um, But if you do, for some bizarre reason, want to go back and uh, gather up old episodes, make sure you have a a lot of bandwidth because a year's worth of episodes is oftentimes between one and a half and two gigabytes. So again, again, thanks to Willem for for doing that. That would not keep me up all night. The download would keep you up all night. Put me to sleep very quickly, (laughs) I bet. Probably would. All right, we have an Australia desk for this episode again. Boy, the boys have been uh, very active in putting together some some content. They're definitely on a roll. Did you put the didgeridoo in? The didgeridoo means it's time for the Australia news desk. Here's two of the craziest guys we could find south of the equator. It's Steve Vischer and Grant McCarran from the Plain Crazy Down Under podcast. Dateline, 29th of January, 2023. Well, g'day folks and welcome to the Australia Desk for this week's episode number 735. Well, Grant, what an interesting week it's been. I've been doing lots of uh, training, but not in planes, in trains. Oh, you've been train training. I've been train training. In fact, I've been train training so I can train other people to drive trains. Uh, this is getting seriously recursive. I'm getting confused. You're train training to train to be a trainer for other trainers and and I'll yeah, no, it's ow. Yes, dear world, look out. I've requalified because I used to do this many years ago as a train driving instructor, a practical driver trainer in railway speak because that's the way they do things here. But uh, yeah, so uh, for all those dreams I had of being a, you know, an airline pilot when I was young and all that sort of stuff, well, I guess that's not exactly where my uh, I was meant to be, but here in the railways, yeah, back back doing some training. So it's actually it's been an interesting week actually, or an interesting couple of weeks. Uh, relearning stuff that perhaps I've forgotten and uh, <laughs> doing lots of exams and some 
some uh, check rides and even some simulator sessions. Yes, we do have simulators in the railways. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's actually been interesting. Uh, one of the things I actually found as an aside when I first went into the railways 19 years ago is the similarities in some cases between the way we approach at least training people to learn how to drive trains versus people learning how to fly planes. There are, in some places, some similarities in the training syllabus, and it's it's quite interesting when you get right into it. Uh, that wouldn't surprise me, because uh, for those of us who aren't involved in the day-to-day, the simulator is fun. But for those of you who are in the day-to-day, the simulator is called the sweat box for a reason. And that photo that you sent to me of train collision, <laughs> yeah, right across the screen, it wasn't like you'd smacked it into the ground. It was more like you and another train had got naughty. Oh, well, oh, well. You can't, you can't win them all, Grant. That's what I say. <laughs> but, hey, all I can say is once you're an OJT on Job Trainer for uh, V-Line, I ain't going to get photos of you going past my office showing me what you're seeing at the time. No, not with my feet up on the dash. You'll only get, look, only three or four of those a day, I promise. (laughs) Yeah, three or four photos per day of you with your feet up, but nowhere near my office, so I won't feel quite so bad. Uh, Who am I kidding? I'll be jealous as hell. So anyhow, anyhow. speaking of trains, um, mate, it's a good thing you're not driving trains over near Auckland because with all the floods they've had, oh, my God, have you seen the photos and everything? They actually had a freight train derail because of the floods washing out uh, supports for the track. Only one train, huh? They're not trying very hard, are they? Oh, well, you know, they're not quite up to Australian standards in terms of chaos, destruction and disaster. But (laughs) that said, Auckland Airport had a really bad day on Friday. They had a 777, Air New Zealand 777, hit runway edge lights because it came in and it went from left to right to left to right. It was apparently like watching an episode of Star Trek, you know, where the bridge crew go from side to side like brainless sheep. Uh, basically, the winds weren't good. It was probably aquaplaning. Didn't have a good day. That caused the uh, runway to be closed while they fixed the lights and they reopened and everything was good until the rain got really bad and they actually flooded the terminals. Yes, and uh, a lot of uh, very, very uh, displeased passengers there. I, uh, <laughs> a lot of passengers were complaining that they were left down in the departure or arrivals hall and uh, weren't able to get up to the areas where there were food and drink and amenities and showers and all that sort of stuff. And uh, some of the media reports we've seen, um, well, uh, yeah, there was not, not particularly happy people there. So uh, I don't know how long <laughs> that shutdown went for, but, uh, yeah, um, interesting times. It's uh, affected a lot of uh, their operations locally, just trying to get in and out of that airport and also caused a lot of flights to be diverted away from Auckland. There's been a few aircraft turned back. In fact, Emirates, they had an A380 that was ha- pretty much halfway to Auckland when they realised they weren't going to get in. They turned around, so the people on board that aircraft had a 13-hour flight from Dubai to Dubai. Not really a problem if you're in business or first because at least you're being treated nicely, but if you're jammed, stuck down in the back in economy sardine class, ew. Would it be that bad on Emirates though, Grant? I, I don't know. Would it be that bad? <laughs> oh, no. Emirates are pretty good. And uh, American Airlines. Them, but, yeah. Well, American Airlines had a flight uh, that did 10 hours going from Dallas to Dallas. So, yeah, it's caused a lot of hassles. The airport uh, reopened for internationals uh, today, actually, Sunday, and they're trying to get everything back and operating again, but it was pretty much wiped out for 24 hours. So that's a pretty huge amount of time for an international airport. It's actually interesting flying into New Zealand. Uh, the last time I went to the States, I actually did that. I went Melbourne, Auckland, Houston, which was an interesting uh, route. And, and um, uh, considering the parts of the US that I need to travel to when I go there, beats going well, through LAX. Anything beats going through LAX. 
you know, even with the upgrades to the Bradley terminal, it's still, yeah, no, but uh, I got to move on, mate, because I'm going to take something that's pretty good. I'm going to combine two of my favorite things, one of which is space. And? Mm, beer. Well, there you go, Grant. Only you could combine this into a beer report. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Sabre Astronautics here in Australia has announced their first projects that they're going to launch to the International Space Station. I mean, you know, they've got one about sustainable, productive space crops. They've got another one about, you know, mice embryos, eggs, sperm, all this kind of stuff that they're doing some environment experiments on. They've also got one on, you know, like developing a method to repair solid-state metals. Well, yeah, that's really good for a long-term sustainable repair of space objects. Yeah, but you know, the one that really got me was the Vostok Space Beer, a joint venture between Sabre Astronautics and the Four Pines Brewery there in Sydney. I've had a number of their beers multiple times. I'll bet you have. Uh, Yeah, totally. (laughs) This this felt figure was not uh, solely on Kit's amazing cooking alone. Beers have contributed. But yeah, so this joint venture is going to see the world's first beer you can drink in space that comes complete with a zero-G beer bottle. Dude, I'm jealous. You know, I'll be looking uh, forward to, you know, there's some of those good uh, space station tracking apps that you can get. It'll actually be very interesting to watch the trajectory of the space station once they've had a few in. (laughs) That's all I'm saying. Hey, just remember, in space, no one can hear you burp. (laughs) It's not only that. Imagine who's piloting that thing when they're four sheets to the wind. Well, you know, one little sniff and you'd be gone, but at least a four-pack before I'd be starting to send us going, I can't can't deny it. I can't deny it. (laughs) But, hey, you know, one of the things that comes from beer is gas. Oh, it's propellant. Okay. Oh, well, hey. yeah, there you go. React, that's reaction sustainable. control systems. Yeah. Oh, look look at me scoot across the big empty space. Yeah. No, that's, prob- that's probably how they sold it to the uh, people at NASA in the first place. <laughs> totally. But, uh, you know, speaking of gas, leaks, and big empty spaces – uh, Sydney Tower at Sydney Airport, the air traffic control tower, was evacuated today due to a gas leak earlier this morning, and it caused chaos. It sure did. And I, just as an aside, that was the best segue we've ever done, Grant. I thought that oh, was fantastic. Mate, I, I, I am a legend in my own burp box. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so gas fumes through the air conditioning went the report from Air Services Australia, and, of course, they're not going to muck around with that. So, uh, obviously, they shut the tower down temporarily, evacuated all of their staff, and uh, sent the fireys in there to work out exactly what was going on. I don't know what they found. Obviously, not a lot of gas because it wasn't shut down for all that long. No, it was about an hour, and uh, something caused gas smell to go into the aircon system. They figured it out. They uh, got it all back up and running. It was only shut for about an hour, but that was enough to cause ooh, a couple of international flights to divert, one to Brisbane, one to Canberra. A few others were in the holding pattern, and uh, there were comments like, oh, no, I don't think I'm going to make my uh, interconnections to get to my international flights. But uh, one comment was uh, from somebody stuck on the tarmac waiting for their flight from Canberra to Sydney and told that they ain't going nowhere. And that was Dr. Malcolm Davis from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, Mm -hmm. ASPI, somebody that uh, I've definitely had a few chats with and even interviewed. Yes, talk about a heavy hitter. He was on his way to Perth. I wonder if he got there in the end, actually, uh, Malcolm Davis. I'm sure he's got some good connections there at uh, at, uh, Air Services Australia and he'll be able to get the answers he needs but, uh, you know, granted, it strikes me about Sydney Airport, their timing is all wrong. If they wanted to have a gas leak, well, they could just have it, say, after 2300 because for some reason they still have a curfew at Sydney Airport where everything would have been shut down. Probably not the tower, but, you know, unlike Melbourne where we could just fly planes in and out whenever we want. 
I know, right? Because we're not right next to uh, various politically sensitive flight paths. Anyhow, I can assure you, Dr. Malcolm Davis did make it to Perth because I can see in his feed that he posted a beautiful photo of sunset over the Indian Ocean. Oh, beautiful. Always a great time of the year to go to Perth. It's a beautiful city if you can ever find your way over there. (laughs) That's for sure. But hey, speaking of going west and speaking of sunsets and all that kind of stuff, I, uh, I believe you've got a bit of a sad note for us. Yeah, we just wanted to pay a tribute to a, a friend of the podcast and a big supporter of our work over the years who sadly left us a week or so back with the sad news that Matt Savage, one of the most superb aviation photographers that you would find in this part of the world, right up there with the best of the best. Uh, Matt's uh, been fighting a heroic battle against cancer for the last few years and unfortunately it got the better of him uh, about a, a week or so ago and he left us far too young. Uh, we just wanted to pay tribute to Matt and send our uh, most heartfelt condolences to his wife Maria and to his daughter Charlotte and uh, he was just a wonderful photographer, an absolute gentleman and uh, as I said Grant, a big supporter of our work and gone in his mid-40s far, far too young. Yeah, way too young, mate, way too young. So, yeah, sorry to see Matt go. Some awesome photos, great guy, and, yeah, we'll be lesser for his lack. And if you're on social media and you wanted to check out some of Matt's work from uh, over the years, uh, a lot of the photography he took was uh, in this part of uh, Victoria in uh, Australia where Grant and I live. Uh, in and around areas like Tyab, where there's a lot of classic aircraft around, just mm-hmm. superb photography. You'll find that on social media at uh, Mac One Aero Media. A, a big, big loss to our industry. And uh, wherever you are, mate, we hope you're flying well. Well, that's everything we have for you on this week's Australia Desk. Grant, uh, we'll be back again next week, and that'll make it five in a row if we can pull that off. Oh, mate, you're setting us up for failure. It's enough that we've got to four. This is more that we've done in one month than we've done in like four years. I'll need a rest. Until next week, I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran. Cheers, folks. <laughs> okay, here's the question. Yeah. If, if you're in space, you're in a pressurized suit. So if you belch after you've been drinking a beer, there's technically no ill effects except perhaps to you at some point. Would that be accurate, uh, engineering folk? If you're wearing a suit, yeah, yeah. I think um, anything that you uh, expel from your uh, body while in the suit is going to affect you. (laughs) (laughs) And maybe not in a good way. Mm. Oh, dear. Yeah, Matt Savage, uh, amazing photographer. Um, We'll uh, we'll put a link to uh, to that Facebook page. In the show notes, and you can just you know browse some of the photos. You just have to see this, a few of them, and you know that this is an, an amazing, or this was an amazing, amazing photographer. Just some really spectacular images. All right, on to the listener mail. Uh, we heard from Paolo. Uh, now, we were talking about gyrocopters and things last episode, and I can't even remember how we got onto that topic. You were talking about how when I think you were at your mother's house, you could see them flying overhead. Right, 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 from the place. So uh, Paolo writes, uh, he said, just a little for the records comment on gyros. Now, I didn't know this. Only Benson gyros are called gyrocopters. Back in the days, he went out and trademarked the name. All the others are referred to as gyroplanes. So that's kind of an interesting little distinction. I didn't know that. And then he, yeah, the Bensons are, um, that was a long time ago. 
I don't think. Yep, 70s and 80s, lots of them flying around back then. Yes, yes. So Paolo writes, uh, the field in Maryland you mentioned where training can be obtained is Bay Bridge W29. That's right. Uh, and the make they use is Autogyro. Their uh, website is autogyrousa.com. Now, uh, Paolo says, I've been flying a Kalidas in the tri-state area since 2015, and it's great fun. We'll have a photo of, uh, of that in the show notes. Uh, you know, if you haven't seen one of these things, these things just look like more fun than ought to be legal. Oh, and this looks a lot better than the old Benson gyrocopters. I mean, those looked a little, a little sketchy. This uh, looks very aerodynamic and uh, very cool looking. Interestingly, I spotted a pair of these, and I'm not sure they were exact same brand, uh, at my home airport today in uh, Palo Alto. They caught my eye. One of them was spinning up and ready to go, and the other was just uh, parked outside. And I kind of got my curiosity up just how many uh, gyroplane pilots are there. And the best estimate I could find online was of the 600,000 pilots out there, only 2,000 are gyroplane pilots. So yeah, I commented before that these aircraft are pretty rare. The people who fly them, also equally rare. Yes, they look so uh, just like a blast, and uh, yeah. uh, this particular model is, uh, you know, it's, got, it's enclosed. You're you're inside a fuselage, I guess you'd call it. So uh, some of the older ones, you're you know, you're out there in the open, uh, with, you know, with the with the fresh air the in your face. Gyrocopter early ones. Yes, they looked like they were never finished. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. True. All right. you saw was tube and tube motor, frame. and yeah, it was an. An erector set with a seat attached to it. Yeah, I didn't mean to interrupt you, David. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, uh, we're talking about a technology that turns 100 years old this year. Does um, it really? Well, yeah. Sure, the, sure. The, Sierra, the Sierra Autogyro, which is technically the first autogyro. Um, later, um, Stephen Pitcairn brought the, um, auto, the Sierra Autogyro here to the United States which was the first rotorcraft in the United States. And believe it or not, that took place in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. Therefore, really? the reason why I know all this history is because of the American Helicopter Museum, which, of course, you can visit. But Juan Sierra's first um, auto gyro, and he was the one who created the term, um, was in 1923. And we'll be, we'll be celebrating that 100th anniversary at the museum this year. Because without it, um, Rotorcraft would not have made the, made it here to the United States. But keep in mind that when we're talking about gyrocopters and we're talking about autogyros and, and gyroplanes, the rotor is not powered. The main rotor, the rotary wing, spins due to the forward, forward um, airflow over that wing. They need some sort of pusher, either a pusher propeller on most modern ones or a tractor propeller on the early ones to pull the aircraft forward to generate the generate the lift of the aircraft. Um, it wasn't until later that the that rotor was able to be moved to get pitches. And then the next technology, of course, was the power of the rotor, which became known as the helicopter. It's the oldest technology for rotary wing aircraft. And I just wanted to mention that if anybody saw the movie Annie back in the early 1980s that had a Pitcairn autogyro in it, Daddy Warbucks, as I recall, was landing somewhere in this you know, ancient uh, uh, you know, gyroplane uh, you know, period of the movie. Really cool. The other really famous one is Little Nelly. So if you've ever seen J James Bond 
fly the the autogyro complete with rockets. So Little Delhi is probably the second famous autogyro or the most famous autogyro there was. That's right. That was one of the very early uh, James Bond movies from what, sometime maybe late 60s or something like that? Yeah. Cool. All right. Uh, we also uh, heard from Tom. He, uh, he sent an article in uh, the Plains of Fame Museum has uh, announced that uh, they have a fundraising campaign. They're going to develop uh, what they call a state-of-the-art, or that what they refer to as a state-of-the-art immersive museum campus uh, at Santa Maria Airport in California. Now, of course, Plains of Fame is, is based in Southern California, headquarters at Chino, um, which has got a fantastic museum, nearly 100 aircraft. But this Santa Maria expansion is going to include a museum and STEM educational opportunities as well. So they have a $12 million fundraising campaign. They've raised over 60% of their goal, and they're looking to, to fill the, you know, the rest, obviously. But the museum said they have a, a generous benefactor that has agreed to match new campaign donations dollar for dollar up to $1 million. So if uh, you'd like to donate to this, they'll you know multiply your donation, double your donation, essentially. And we'll have a link in the show notes where you can do that. But it's uh, POF, which is Plains of Fame, pofsantamaria.org. Big airport, that Santa Maria. A lot of, lot of space there, not a whole lot of activity uh, since it's uh, it, does, it doesn't have a really huge city uh, next to it. But this would seem to be a good place where they could spread out and do good things. Yeah, fantastic. All right. Thanks for listening to the Airplane Geeks podcast. Our guest this episode was Robert Rose. He's the co-founder and CEO of Reliable Robotics. Uh, you can find us at airplanegeeks.com. Show notes for this episode at airplanegeeks.com slash 735. As always, our email address is thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com. All right, Rob Mark, anything that you'd like to close with? No, I don't think so. I'm going to just shut up and fade away tonight. <laughs> okay. How about you, Max Trescott? Just want to mention that we had uh, Robert on the Aviation News Talk uh, podcast two years ago, episode 173. If anybody wants to uh, check that out. And, of course, uh, anybody wants to shoot me an email, they can do that at uh, going to aviationnewstalk.com and click on contact at the top of the page. Great. And David Vanderhoof, anything from you? Oh, well, I'm going to say that we, we're following the um, Aussies lead on the UAV Digest, and we're, we're going to have five in a row this week. Um, so we're, if, you, if you haven't listened to Max and I um, drone on, uh, you need to do that on the UAVdigest.com or dronepodcast.com and check out the listing where we talk more about automated uh, vehicles. So nope. other than that, um, don't forget to check us out on social media and, oh, Max, I'll let you run through them now. It's besides Slack. We've got Slack. We've got Discord. Write to us. If if you want to get into uh, Slack or Discord uh, for our teams, uh, just send us an email at thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com. We'll send you a an invitation. All right. With that, I'm going to say, please join us next week as we talk aviation on the Airplane Geeks podcast. Bye, everybody. Keep the blue side up. Nighty night. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>